0: ACAST.com
1: Hello FP Playlist listeners, this is Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy. For this week's Playlist episode, we're featuring one of the latest interviews from FP Live, our magazine's forum for live journalism, where we discuss world affairs with the greatest experts and policymakers. Take a listen. Hello and welcome to FP Live. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to our viewers from around the world. I wish all of you a happy new year and a quieter and more peaceful 2023. As we start this new year, it's a useful time to examine the state of the world. What and where are the biggest crises that confront us? How do we even begin to fix them? In a moment, I'll bring in a terrific guest who's at the forefront of helping people around the world deal with conflict and disaster. And we launched these discussions at FP Live just about a year ago. If you're not a subscriber, remember that subscribing means you can watch all of these discussions on demand and send in questions that I'll pose on your behalf. We have a special 40% discount going right now, so it's a great time to become part of the FP community. For those of you who have already subscribed, thank you. Your support makes our work possible. So On to today's discussion. You'll see on our site a list of FP's 10 conflicts to watch in 2023. It runs through the war in Ukraine, of course, but also other important flashpoints to keep an eye on, Armenia and Azerbaijan, Iran, Yemen, Ethiopia, and much more. But outside of FP, I'd also like to direct you to a different report, this one by the International Rescue Committee, which lists out 20 countries that are at the greatest risk of new are worsening humanitarian emergencies this year. The list includes Somalia, Ethiopia, Afghanistan, the DRC, Yemen, Syria, South Sudan, Burkina Faso, Haiti, and of course, Ukraine. When you you expand this list to 20, those 20 countries account for just 13% of the world's population, but 90% of the people on Earth in humanitarian need, 81% of the people forcibly displaced, 89% of conflict-related civilian deaths, and 80% of people who are acutely food insecure. That report is up on www.rescue.org. The question we should grapple with then is what can we do to mitigate the crises in these countries? How do we direct aid to them? How do we make sure that broader global problems like climate change or the food crisis created by the war in Ukraine don't exacerbate those other conflicts? My guest today does incredible work in these very areas. David Milibin is president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, whose report I just cited. David is also a former foreign secretary of the United Kingdom. Welcome back to FP Live, David.
0: Thank you, Ravi. Very good to hear, with, hear you and very good to be with you.
1: Cheers, you too. Happy New Year as well. So I want to start... Happy New Year to you. Yeah, I want to start with Ukraine and then broaden out to the rest of the world. Um, the UN says we're looking at the fastest and largest displacement crisis in decades. Um, give us a sense of the numbers and the scale of what you see on the ground.
0: Well, Ukraine is striking for the scale of displacement. We know that at the high point, probably in the middle of last year, about seven million refugees had crossed the border from Ukraine into Europe. We think probably two or three million have gone back. Uh, we also know that within Ukraine itself, uh, at various points over the last year, six, seven, eight million people have been internally displaced. much harder to get those numbers. And obviously the fact that the Russian invasion is now taking off civilian infrastructure, civilian housing, but also power supplies and power support, infrastructural support, obviously means that civilians are bearing an enormous share of the brunt of this campaign, of this invasion and of this war. Uh, The uh, other thing that I think is worth saying is that Ukrainians have had the benefit that in some ways is really exceptional if you look at the people in humanitarian need around the world. The first is that the humanitarian appeals for funding of those inside Ukraine has been high rather than underfunded. It's very striking in comparison to other humanitarian needs. Uh, And in some cases, funding has been directed away from Uh, parts of Africa, parts of Asia, uh, towards Ukraine, and we can come back to that. And the second thing is that Ukrainians who fled the country have fled to Europe in the main, and the European response has been unusually supportive. Uh, The immediate guarantee on the weekend after February the 24th last year that every Ukrainian would have three years' residency rights in Europe, three years' rights to work, three years' rights for their kids to go to school – Uh, three years' rights to welfare benefits. That's very unusual. And our argument at the International Rescue Committee is take the lessons of Ukraine and the the lessons about mitigating crisis, not separate from the diplomatic and and military effort, uh, and learn the lessons elsewhere because the kind of response both for those in need inside Ukraine and those who are refugees has has set a new benchmark that shouldn't remain the exception.
1: But almost by definition, David, if that much unusual ex- uh, sort of attention is being paid to the war in Ukraine, then doesn't that sort of crowd out attention for other crises? In other words, we simply can't give adequate attention to everything at once, right? It's certainly true that you
0: can't give adequate attention to everything, but no one's asking for, for everything. What, what we're saying is that the 300 million people who are in humanitarian need who live in the 20 countries that we've described? That's not a, something that we should, that's not a Mount Everest that it is being made out uh, to be. It's a manageable number of people who are trying to keep uh, body and soul together. And the fact that the World Food Programme has to cut food rations. Uh, that there are increasing examples of NGOs being denied access to civilian populations in need. Those are choices. Those are political choices. Those are not some some inevitability as a result of the the, the natural forces of, uh, of things. And I think it's very, very important that we don't succumb to the belief that there's a choice between preventing famine in East Africa, and I use the word famine advisedly, not, not as a piece of rhetoric, uh, a choice between preventing famine in East Africa and doing right by Ukrainians who've been bombed out of their homes. That's a false choice.
1: Yeah, it is indeed. Um, now, uh, other than sort of the aid effects, there are many other ripple effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think it's caused or contributed to a global food crisis, an energy crisis, inflation, much else. Um, Just give us a sense of, you know, in 2022, how much did Ukraine end up impacting other crises in other parts
0: of the world? Well, I would say it was a real kicker. That's the way to understand this. Uh, Remember, uh, the increase in humanitarian need in 2022 built on previous records in 2021 and 2020. Uh, Our diagnosis is that three things are driving this humanitarian crisis. Uh, Number one, conflict in the main civil wars within countries. Syria, you mentioned, being a good example of that. Uh, War inside the, or conflict inside the Democratic Republic of Congo, conflict in Ethiopia, many conflicts in Ethiopia. Secondly, and relatedly, the climate crisis, which both exacerbates resource stress and therefore contributes to conflict, but also is a driver of humanitarian need in and of itself. People forget that the rise in average global temperature is also associated with more extreme weather events, and we certainly saw a lot of that in 2022. But the third aspect, the the kicker, as I describe it, is the economic turmoil that has spread out in significant part from COVID but also from the war in Ukraine. That's where you see people on the breadline being forced over the edge. Uh, A country like Somalia, 90% dependent on Ukrainian uh, wheat, Uh, Significant parts of Africa, 70% plus dependent on Ukrainian uh, wheat and grain. Uh, That increase in food prices that we've seen is very striking. Just to give you some uh, a a statistic from the report that you helpfully quoted that we published, that we've just published. There's been a 40% increase in food prices in the countries that we, basic food prices, in the countries that we highlight, the 20 countries compared to something between 10 and 20% in the Western world. So you can see that there's double trouble for people who are already in trouble. And we know the cost of living crisis in advanced industrialized countries and the strain that's causing. In the hardest-hits parts of the world, it's really life-threatening.
1: Yeah, indeed. And these are obviously many countries where people have lower income levels, so shocks are harder to absorb. Um, I want to focus on Africa just a little bit here, because I think of the 20 countries in the report we've mentioned, 12 are, are African countries. And it seems like that's been the case for several years now. Um, uh, why Why is it? And why aren't we doing more to sort of solve problems in Africa for the longer term?
0: Well, I think that Africans have given strong answers uh, to, to both of your questions. Why is it happening and what can be done about it. Uh, We've known for some time that alongside the story of Africa rising 350 million people in the the African middle class, there's a story of Africa or Africans struggling and, and acute challenges in certain countries. And what I said earlier about conflict plus climate, plus the economic shocks, all of them underpinned by in some places weak governance. Uh, that is a recipe for the kind of humanitarian need that we are seeing in places like Somalia, top of the list, Ethiopia, uh, second in the list, uh, DRC, Burkina Faso, you mentioned, I'd also mention Central African uh, Republic, parts of the Sahel. Now, uh, the, 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 the challenge is one thing to describe. Uh, the way out of it is obviously for, for, uh, for something that, uh, where the, the central players are Africans, not international NGOs. We employ large numbers of local staff across our network. We're 95% local uh, staff. What, what, what I uh, get back is a twofold message. First of all, the bleeding that comes from these humanitarian crises is self-fulfilling. That is a real syndrome where countries that are trapped in a cycle of conflict and, and need, untended humanitarian crisis is a big driver of political crisis. Secondly, the tools of diplomacy for addressing wars within states um, are not yet developed properly. We've got tools of diplomacy that were developed to regulate relations between states. Uh, What we face in significant parts of the world now is wars within states, and tools like sovereignty are being used as a shield against accountability get to the roots of the problem. You can't just tackle the symptoms. You also have to look at more fundamental questions of governance. And that's something where there are some interesting, interesting work going on, but where I think there's a real deficit to be overcome.
1: Yeah. And those are tough problems to fix as well. I'm going to start taking some of our subscriber questions because we've got so many of them from around the Great. world. Tiki Barnard from Shift Impact Africa writes, the developed world is not interested in Africa's challenges, but we as Africans need to see and acknowledge that the West is using Africa to their own benefit and have no qualms about the plight of Africa if they can extract and consume. The latest summit in America, I think she's referring to the one in December, is just another way for America to get yet another hold on Africa. When are our leaders going to see this? David, I imagine you, you hear things like this quite often. What's your sense of you know, uh, how, how to get around this notion of, of the West trying to only think about Africa when it needs to extract resources, but not really to care about its sort of long-term health?
0: Well, I think there is a lot of anger and you can see that, for example, when there are calls on African countries to support resolutions condemning the war in Ukraine, um, the invasion of Ukraine, uh, a lot of African leaders said, well, we don't we don't support the invasion, but we're not willing to condemn it because we see it as part of a wider syndrome. Now, I'm not here to answer for the American government. That The, the question, in a way, needs to go uh, to them. Our commitment as the International Rescue Committee comes from our humanitarian mission, and that's driven by our staff across Africa. Uh, and what they say is, yes, there need to be African solutions to African problems. Uh, they also say they want to benefit from the global expertise that comes from working on very difficult issues of health education, uh, food insecurity, violence world that they want to deploy and it's very much our um, mantra that instead that we have to reject the language of quote-unquote capacity building has been a big part of the development humanitarian system for a long time. We, We talk about The marriage of the expertise of local people with the expertise that comes from global comparative and historic experience. Uh, The International Rescue Committee is now the largest uh, impact evaluation agency in the humanitarian sector, as well as a large operating agency. We we do about 30 percent of the impact evaluations around the world. Some of them are in Africa. For example, we've just done a big study of 27,000 kids, how to treat malnutrition much, much better in Mali. We've shown how you can have dramatically better results with a different system. But other evidence comes from elsewhere in the world. And I think it's very, very important that we combine this, that we have this idea that there's global expertise, but there's also local expertise and real progress comes from marrying the two.
1: Yeah, indeed. I mean, you know, if you had to advise sort of African leaders or leaders in other countries, Um, that are mentioned in this report, it strikes me, given that you mentioned um, Russia's war on Ukraine and how some countries around the world uh, didn't take up the call to sort of join US-led sanctions. Um, If we're entering a new cold war of sorts um, between the US and China, um, is that a moment for some of these countries that we're talking about to try and leverage as much as they can get from both sides? How should they be approaching geopolitically
0: uh the world we're in well there's a lot packed into that question and i, I want to say at the answer I, I wouldn't uh, i have more humility than to suggest that i should be advising african leaders so i'm very much my answer is very much not framed in that in that context uh, i think that my own perspective and this as you said before i was in government um, i was from minister but what I've seen in my work at the International Rescue Committee, makes me think that the way to understand uh, and to frame the challenge, and I've argued this in, in print uh, as well as uh, um, in person, is to think about uh, the 2020s as a great debate between impunity and accountability. It's not democracy versus autocracy. That's really a national question. But at the international level, the, the choice we face is between impunity or the rule of law Maybe a better way of putting it. And I'm actually involved in a project called the Atlas of Impunity, which is going to come out um, in the next month or two, uh, which uh, ranks every country in the world for five on five dimensions of impunity versus accountability. And I think it's uh, th- that's the right framing. Now, what we say in our report about how you contribute to turning around this rising tide of humanitarian need is three is three things. One is to. Break the cycle of crisis, just give you a very clear example. As long as there are people on the edge of famine, you, 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 you're repeating a cycle there. We have to break that cycle. There is a high-level panel on preventing famine in, uh, set up by the UN. It needs to be far more operational. It needs to re- be re-energized with different membership. The report shows how to do that. So break the cycle of crisis. Second, protect civilians in conflict. The fact that civilians are more likely to die in conflict than soldiers is something I don't think people have taken on board That's because civilians are increasingly seen not as collateral damage, but as the central feature of warfare today. The terror of civilians is a central feature of military strategy. That's totally contrary to international law, and it's a driver of humanitarian uh, need. Thirdly, and finally, we say the world has to get better at managing global risks. I, I have this sense... That resilience is being, and it's in that gap that we're seeing many more of the clients that we serve falling into that hole, falling into that gap. So our recommendations, if you like, are packaged in those three dimensions. And if we don't take action, we're going to see the rising tide continue, more humanitarian need, which, as sure as nightfall as day, is an incubator of political instability.
1: Indeed. Um, you know, one one of the drivers you mentioned, and it's in your report as well, is sort of climate change is a key accelerator of turmoil. And um, another one of our subscribers, in fact, several subscribers had climate-related questions, but Gary Dorst, um, for example, wanted to ask about whether things such as the loss and damage fund um, that was agreed um, at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, whether things like that could begin to make a difference for some of these 20 countries that are listed in your report?
0: Well, yes, but not if they're at the expense of action for mitigation of climate change or action on adaptation of climate change. I mean, my great fear is that we, have, we already have two unfunded or underfunded buckets of activity when in respect of climate change. One, mitigation, so helping poorer parts of the world uh, get onto a um, development path that is low carbon rather than high carbon, that's underfunded. Secondly, adaptation of climate change, there's something called the Notre Dame Index of Climate Change Vulnerability. Six of the top 10 are also in our the top 10 of our watch list. And climate vulnerability, by the way, in countries that have done very little to contribute towards the climate country, crisis at a very low emissions, the adaptation fund is massively, it's not even started yet. It was agreed in Copenhagen in 2009. As you know, it's not even started yet. So... The danger is that uh, uh, we start debating a loss and damage fund before we funded mitigation and adaptation, and I realise that mitigation is partly private funding as well as public funding, Um, but we're a long way from from satisfying the the mitigation and adaptation demands. And certainly it's it's important to promote climate resilience. We're doing some very interesting work on seed strength in northeast Syria, um, on uh, farmer engagement strategies in the Sahel, Um, where we're trying to boost local resilience that takes some funding and so I think the spirit behind the questions that you've received is absolutely right we need all of the above when it comes to the the climate crisis we I was environment secretary actually 15 years ago and then very much mitigation was center stage adaptation was well we may need to come to that I don't think we can afford that now we need to be adapting and mitigating at the same time
1: yeah exactly and climate change is here it's not something that's coming in the future it's here it's now which is why countries, especially in the global South, have been calling for, for loss and damage. I mean, what, I, some of this is in the report, but for people listening in around the world, what, what guardrails are you looking for countries to try and build to prevent uh, further crises
0: down the line? Yeah, that's a great point. And you've, 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 you've reminded me, I should have, I, I'm a bit off message having just come back from holiday today. So I should have, I should have got this in my, my team will be sitting there scolding me for not uh, speaking to the title of the report, which is about rebuilding the guardrails. And I, let me just take a moment, prompted by you, to, 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 to just explain that. I mean, when a crisis strikes, the guardrails are there to prevent it becoming a personal disaster. Now, the guardrails can be a social safety net. The guardrails can be humanitarian assistance. The guardrails can be accountability for uh, breaches of international humanitarian law when it comes to the treatment of civilians in a conflict. The guardrails can be adaptation to promote resilience in the face of climate change. What we've seen is a weakening of those guardrails in 2022, and we're calling for a strengthening of the guardrails. So in respect of the three three elements of of the the fight back that we've recommended. One, breaking the cycle of crisis. We're arguing that every donor should say that 50% of its funds for overseas aid should go to crisis and fragile states. At the moment, it's only about a quarter, even though half of the world's extreme poor live in uh, those fragile and conflict states. Uh, Secondly, protecting civilians in conflict. We're saying there needs to be an independent office for the promotion of humanitarian access because both UN agencies and NGOs are fearful of speaking out against those governments that are preventing, or those sometimes non-state actors that are pro, uh, that are stopping the delivery of humanitarian aid, because we fear reprisals. So you need independent um, naming and shaming to try and bring, bring out what is a, an illegal act as well as an immoral one. And when it comes to managing global risks, we're saying don't forget pandemics. The fact that we didn't handle the COVID pandemic right shouldn't uh, lead us to, to believe that we're not going to be facing another pandemic soon. We, we're saying there needs to be a global uh, leader-level uh, body that is h- holding accountable different national strategies for preventing as well as responding uh, to, to developments in the current pandemic or on or, or the threat of new pandemics. So rebuild, those are all examples of strengthening guardrails. You know when you're driving, you need guardrails if you're at the top of a cliff. We need more guardrails for those who are uh, at, um, in peril
1: around the world. Yeah, indeed we do. Some more subscriber questions. We've just got a few minutes left. Martin Verrepla asks, uh, and this is a good question, is there something, however small, that we can stop doing to prevent all these crises you're talking about from getting worse?
0: There are many things that we can stop doing. We We can stop polluting the atmosphere. We can stop giving... ...to... Uh, war criminal, blind eye to it. We can stop underfunding the support of refugee hosting states. Remember, most refugees are in poor countries, not in rich countries, and those countries that are hosting them are bearing the full burden of, of that, the financial burden uh, of that. So there are many things that we can that we can stop doing, um, but there are also things we need to start doing. And in a way, that's two sides of the same coin. So it's it's a good way of framing it from your from your questioner. But that would be my answer. We can stop. We can stop uh, arm supplies that are fueling a. Uh, uh, the, the the fueling the impunity
1: that we describe, uh, you know, as it happens, we had a question about exactly that. So I'm going to put two more questions to you together. Um, subscriber John Torpy um, asks: To what extent is the American arms industry responsible for fueling conflicts abroad with its weapons and military technologies? And as you mull that, David, um, John Preston Ford wants to know, what would the IRC ask US constituents to do specifically to pressure our lawmakers and executives to be less monstrous regarding our borders, migration, and handling refugees and asylum seekers?
0: Well, I live and work in in the US uh, now, obviously, or maybe not obviously, but I am a British citizen. Um, My my accent is from Britain, not from Brooklyn. I think that those are two interesting questions. I mean, remember, America has more constraints on our arms exports than some other countries. Um, It's not quite as tough as some of the European rules. Um, And what we've always been arguing is that there needs to be effective um, export controls when it comes to to arms, so that arms aren't used either for external aggression or for uh, internal uh, repression. So I think that the, the argument there would be um, to make sure that those rules are sustained. And I think I'm right in saying that the Biden administration re-established some of those uh, export controls when it came in after they'd been um, dismantled. In respect to the question about the, um, the southern border, which is important, the IRC has operations both in Phoenix, in Dallas, and in the south of the US, El Paso, um, but also on the other side of the border, in Mexico, um, in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And I think that um, what I would say is that America needs to um, ensure that it fulfills its legal responsibilities as well as its moral and historic responsibilities towards those who are applying for asylum. It's not illegal to apply for asylum. Um, It's a legal right, in fact, to apply for it and to have your case heard. And I think the biggest thing that could be done is is to break into that backlog of over a million cases that are sitting on the docket waiting to be handled. It's not in the interests either of the asylum seekers or of the American system for that to
1: be the case. A Couple more questions. Um, Michelle McQuaid wants to know the following. Given the recent banning of female NGO workers in Afghanistan, what factors does the humanitarian community weigh when determining their response? She goes on to say, obviously women are crucial to any humanitarian operation, but at what point does halting operations within the country to protest the decision or to protect employees, send a political message or whatever the reasoning is behind the question do more harm than good?
0: So that's a really important question. We're dealing with this in real time. IRC has about 8,000 staff across 12 provinces in Afghanistan. Uh, 3,000 of the women, we're very proud of that, at all levels of our organization, and 99.6%, 99.7% are Afghans. Um, We've uh, taken the decision that we have to suspend operations because our women's staff are so integral to that work and to reaching female clients because of course it's another aspect of the the governing authorities edicts in uh, Afghanistan that only women can serve other women and so um, since more than half of our clients are women uh, we need our women staff uh, in place now we do have some examples at local level in the health sector of NGOs being able to restart operations and we're committed to doing that as soon as we can so we're standing for practicality and humanity in our Afghan operations. Um, it's not it's not ideological. we follow local customs in the work that we do. And we're looking to out to the UN who are the chief interlocutor with the governing authority uh, to help find a way through what is a very dangerous impasse.
1: Um. I think we have time for just one last question, but Clement Aduku, who frequently writes into these discussions, asks um, if there are any prospects for ensuring improved peace and global security in 2023, and also channeling, I think, what many of our subscribers have written in with. Is there anything, uh, David Miliband, you're hopeful for this year?
0: Well, Clement and, and others, thank you for for the question, so maybe a short question, but it could yield a very long answer. I think that 2022, the year we've just left, was not a great year for despots. I mean, it wasn't, uh, it was a year in which uh, people around the world in all continents stood up for rights. You can think of the different uh, countries. Now, that doesn't mean that the tide of impunity has been reversed, but I think we've seen mass movements around the world that have protested and stood up for um, the most basic of human rights. And that um, always inspires me to to the saying, if you look at the statistics, you get depressed. If you look at the people, you have hope. And that's what keeps me going.
1: That's a really good answer. David, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ravi. You've been listening to FP Live, foreign policy's platform for live journalism. If you're interested in learning more or want to watch the next FP Live, check out our website at foreignpolicy.com live. Thanks for listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. Our production team includes Tal Alroy, Laura Rosbro Talam, Rosie Julin, and Yurei Wu. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Thanks for listening.